welcome to another installment of Vantage Worldwide, brought to you by Abacus Worldwide. On each episode of Vantage Worldwide, we tap into the expertise of our members from across the globe to get the lowdown on just what it takes to do business in their respective country. My name is Robin Krishnan, the Asia-Pacific Regional Director at Abacus Worldwide, and I'll be your host as we gather key insights from our esteemed panelists and revisit the nuances of doing business in Abacus's home country of the United States. I am honored today to be joined by three experts in the field based in the United States who are going to serve as our guides as we navigate the business and corporate landscape in the country. On the panel today, we have Jan Dalman. Jan is with Rosenfeld & Co and represents the firm out of the greater New York area as a partner. With Rosenfeld & Co, Jan leads the firm's attest services team. He also kick-started the development of the firm's SEC and broker-dealer practice and has been involved in numerous registration statements, including, at this time, the largest regulation A filing in history. Jan also maintains the role of relationship manager for several of the firm's automotive dealership clients in the Northeast and represents the firm at automotive conferences throughout the year, such as NEDA. He is actively involved in the development and mentoring of staff involved in the automotive industry as well. In his spare time, Jan enjoys playing ice hockey and golf. Now, Jan, as someone from a tropical country, um, <laughs> hockey seems like such a feat. Um, the last time I think I skated, I was on my back within minutes. So hopefully after this, I can get some pointers from you. Welcome to the show, Jan. We also have on the panel today Jason Schneider, a founding member of Schneider Law Group PLLC, a business boutique law firm in Raleigh, North Carolina. SLG focuses on mergers and acquisitions, debt and equity finance, and tax strategy for a myriad of businesses. As both a CPA and an attorney, Jason's combined experience in financial, tax, and legal matters helps to aid clients throughout the company's life cycle. Jason regularly counsels clients on the tax and legal aspects of mergers, acquisitions, as well as divestitures and the business, legal, and tax issues relating to global business expansion and cross-border transactions. He was recognized and named as one of Business North Carolina's legal elite in 2021 and 2022. In his spare time, he also competes in local sprint and Olympic distance triathlons, as well as half and full marathons. Jason has also coached Little League Baseball for 12 years and is looking forward to coaching his son. Welcome to the podcast, Jason. And how on earth do you find the energy to compete in triathlons and marathons? I'm exhausted just even reading it out. I don't know. I was thinking just now how I'm I'm on the sidelines because I'm injured with a with a hip injury. So like looking forward to getting back to my sprints and Olympic triathlons. But they're fun. It's a good it's a good escape from everything else I do. I, I enjoy it. That's great. And last but certainly not least, we have as well Stephen Miller, president and CEO of Stephen E. Miller CPA PC. Stephen's specialties include strategic tax planning for incentive stock options, international tax planning and compliance, expatriate tax return and consulting foreign national tax return and consulting, high net worth individuals, and strategic planning for new franchises. With a great passion for teaching and training young professionals, Stephen has authored international tax training courses and worked as an instructor for the Professional Development Institute. He was also a presenter at the 2013 Tax Alliance Conference held annually in Plano and co-sponsored by the IRS. He also created nationally broadcast webinars for ACPEN, an organization that provides CPE to most of the state CPA societies. He has also written various courses, including Overview of International Taxation and Taxation of International Transactions, and has been published by the Dallas Business Journal and today's CPA magazine for articles on international expatriate taxation and tax planning for incentive stock options. Well, that's quite an array of achievements, Stephen, and it's an honor to have you join us today. Be busy and therefore out of trouble most of the time. Welcome, gentlemen, to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Now, before we start to pick your brains and get into the meat of things, so to speak, we typically do a brief introduction into the nation itself. Of course, the United States being what it is, as such a major force in the global economy, it needs very little introduction, but we'll give it a go. 
The United States is a highly developed mixed market economy and has the world's largest nominal GDP and net wealth. It has the second largest by purchasing power parity behind China. It has the world's eighth highest per capita GDP and the ninth highest per capita GDP PPP as of 2022. The US dollar is the currency most used in international transactions and is the world's foremost reserve currency. The nation's economy is fueled by an abundance of national resources, well-developed infrastructure, and high productivity as well. It is clear then that the United States is a major destination for foreign investments. Now, when it comes to doing business in the United States, we often encounter inquiries from fellow uh, Abacus members and their clients located in other countries and jurisdictions about the ideal location or state that their clients ought to set up operations in. With there being a slew of differing regulations and requirements between locations, what are some of the key considerations, uh, Jen, that you think businesses should take into account when choosing the right location to set up their business? Sure. You know, being in the test field, I, I think a big component of what we do is making sure you spend time planning properly. And that goes into responding to that question as well, because most people just quickly jump into choosing a tax-friendly state or a place that's easy and quick to register. But I think you really need a plan with your, your, your tax advisor, your attorneys, and have a, a real introspective look long-term on what the business's goals are, where is the best operational spot for it to set up, where it's gonna be doing the bulk of its business, its customers, its operations, its employees, because while each state and jurisdiction has its own nuances, advantages, disadvantages from legal taxes, if you're operating in different states within the U.S., you're still going to have to register in those states. And effectively, you're going to be subject to their jurisdictions anyway. So therefore, while it's important to make sure that you're compliant with all the rules and regulations, uh, I'm not one to advocate to choose Delaware over anywhere else just because Delaware is a tax-friendly and and franchise-friendly state and, and quick and easy to set up when you know the company is going to have the bulk of its operations in New York and they're going to have to register to do business in New York anyway. So I, again, I think you, you definitely need to plan properly internally and understand that where in the U.S. am I going to be working? What are my specific uh, products and, and offerings that I will be doing? Because it, it, it does get impacted by that as well if it's online or if you actually are shipping stuff, different things like that. Um, but I would use your attorney, your tax, and, and your business manager to really decide it based on operational and overall business goals and, and plans. So the, the one thing to consider, while I don't recommend any one state over the other, it is critical to understand every state and local jurisdiction rules. Uh, I know being in New York, a lot of foreign investors come to New York, they set up offices in New York, they think they're filing all the right returns on their own and doing their own reporting, and they'll get tripped up on something, whether it's a, a foreign owner, or in New York, there's something called commercial rent tax that uh, people don't even realize they have to file and pay extra tax for having offices in you know metropolitan New York City. So, and with anything, the reporting, the, the, the penalties are usually worse than the actual tax and effort of filing it. So again, I go back to where I started, the planning and having the right people involved in the planning really should dictate where you set up in the U.S. Uh, I mean, like what you're saying is basically do your research, understand what each state brings in, 
you know what what fits your business profile the best way i suppose right correct i mean it's 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 for most people when they consider a purchase they only think can i afford it they don't think about the ongoing maintenance cost of their purchase and it's the same thing with coming to do business in the us uh there is a significant cost to maintain doing business and be in the us it's not and and most people only focus on the initial setup and the initial setup cost in picking the location that should not be the case it's what you're going to be doing for the next 10 20 years why did you come to the us what's the appeal of being in the us what is your purpose for being here and then have you know the the pros and cons of setting up in different states from your attorney and your accountants to come up with the best game plan overall and it's something that has to be looked at every year as you're going further uh with the different court rulings to make sure that you're you know set up registered and current in all the states you're operating in yeah the other thing i would have added to that is you know from a big picture standpoint the accountants and the attorneys really are the leading the clients through the minefield it's so easy for them to step on a mine and blow their foot off because they didn't know there was this reporting requirement or some other thing that they get into trouble what we're seeing today so much is is the issues with nexus of reporting in various states we've got clients that are setting in texas and they go oh great no income tax but they have to file in 30 states because they're doing business in all those states i i agree from a, you know i always tell the clients that it's really important to get in touch with their cpas because there's um from a sales tax standpoint from a income tax standpoint from just you know obviously doing business qualifying to do business in each of the states that they're that they're uh, act that they have activities in it becomes complicated and you know they're they're always concerned you know how do i i want to set up in florida or I want to set up in texas because there's no income tax but that I'm going to be doing business in California or I don't want to be I don't want to touch California but I'm you know because it's so complicated that's what they that's what they know is California is expensive California is complicated um but they don't necessarily know why it's just what they hear so you know kind of making sure that they're educated and informed about what the pros and cons are about what they're trying to accomplish what are their goals what are their growth plans and what are they trying to accomplish and making sure they have the right um professional advisors working as a team together to help them I think is really important I think those are some great points that all of you have raised especially with regards to the location. Um and another key area of consideration for businesses looking to set up in the US is deciding on the appropriate type of business entity to set up. And Jason, could you perhaps give us an insight into the types of business entities commonly used in the US and what businesses should take into account when deciding which is the best fit for them? Absolutely. In the in the United States you have a number of types of entities. You know, you have corporations which are you know well known and then you have partnerships and LLCs limited liability companies are the are the primary um business entities um corporations you know oftentimes any public company um would would be operating as a as a corporation but also a lot of private closely held companies are corporations as well and you know the you know one of the key distinction factors of corporation or a corporate structure is that you're your business is separate from the personal shareholders or the personal assets of the shareholders so you create some limited liability protections so that's one of the big benefits of having a corporate structure set up even if it's a closely held business with the the way corporations work is you have a board of directors that sort of act that are elected by the shareholders that sort of act as a fiduciary on behalf of the shareholders and you have officers that sort of are the operators of the business the president the ceo 
the vice president, the secretary, the treasurer, you know, or, you know, sort of take charge of operating the business. Um, they, you know, you issue shares in a corporation and, you know, it's, it's sort of structured, you know, in a way that allows the, the company, you know, if you, if you create the corporate formalities you're supposed to, it shields um, your assets from your personal assets from the business assets. So, you know, from a shareholder standpoint, it's very beneficial. Uh, that's one of the main business structures or business entity types. Um, from a tax perspective, and especially when foreigners are coming in to set up a business, oftentimes these days, especially that a corporation is very attractive because you don't have necessarily, you know, you have a corporate income tax and then you have a dividend that's paid to the shareholders. And as long, and if the shareholders are foreign, are foreign or are non-US shareholders, then they're going to receive the dividend, but they're not necessarily going to be subject to sort of what's called effectively connected income or out of a trader business in the United States. So they're not necessarily going to be subject to U.S. taxation under a corporate structure. So a lot of non-U.S. foreigners come in and they, you know, like a C-Corp is attractive, especially recently with the, with the income tax rates lowering to 21% at the corporate rate, it's become fairly, a fairly attractive structure for many reasons, especially from a tax and sort of legal business perspective. A partnership is another very common structure in the U.S. And a partnership could either be a general partnership or a limited partnership. A general partnership, unlike a corporation where you don't have personal, where you're um, you're shielded from liabilities, a person, a partnership, your general partners are have unlimited liability on behalf of the partnership. So there's no legal protection that shields your corporate assets or your business assets from your personal assets. Um, so if there's a lawsuit and you know and the partnership is sued, you they could go after not only the partnership assets but also the general partners' assets as well. So it's not as ideal. From that perspective, but you also have what's called a limited partnership. So any partners that are any foreigners that are investing, or foreign um, folks that are investing in the U.S. activities of a business, could be structured. You know, could be limited partners in a partnership, of which they might toss like they might put money into the business, but they're not actually actively managing the business like a general partner would be managing the business. So their their liability would be limited to what the money that they put in, as opposed to you know any potential exposure to bigger risks of, of a lawsuit, et cetera. So a limited partnership is, is somewhat of a, an attractive structure for investors to come in. But unlike corporation, from a tax perspective, um, partnership income is distributed to the partner's pro rata, regardless of whether they get distributions. But because it's a flow-through entity, unlike a corporation, which is not a flow-through entity, they're going to potentially, the foreign-owned shareholders or members or partners would wind up um, having effectively connected income to U.S. trader business, which would expose potentially the, these folks to U.S. taxation on their share of partnership income. So it's not as ideal. There's times where it makes sense, but it's not always as ideal as a corporate structure for foreign-owned uh, shareholders or investors. Limited liability companies are a little bit different. They're sort of a, a blend um, between a corporate structure and a limited partnership or general partnership structure, where you have the management in the hands of the managers of the LLC. But the um, the members are sort of similar to limited partners, where they are, in sense, passive investors in the business, and they're not going to be subject to personal liability in essence. You could structure an LLC very similar to a corporation with a board of managers, similar to a board of directors and officers, similar to the corporate structure, or you could structure it more like a partnership, where you have partner, you have members, and you have managers, um, sort of similar to a limited partner and a general partner. 
So there's some advantages, but the ma the managers in a limited liability company do not have personal exposure or personal liability. They're actually shielded from personal liability by nature of the of the Limited Liability Company Act. And all of these are all of these types of entities are are sort of governed by statutes. So in a, you know you set them up in a particular state. It's very it's relatively easy. Unlike in a lot of countries, it's relatively easy to set up a a new entity, whether it's a corporation or an LLC. Um, relatively easy, straightforward, and inexpensive to set up an entity in the United States. So it just depends on, you know, again, not one size fits all businesses, you know, really depends on the factual situation, what they're trying to accomplish, um, what the investors are trying to accomplish, and which entity makes the most sense. But those are some of the key factors, you know, to kind of think through with respect to the choice of entity. So I suppose a lot of it has to do in terms of like, uh, what, what are the business objectives as well? And you know what? What do they actually want to achieve in that particular jurisdiction? Right? Absolutely. What, again, it's always a lot of planning and strategy comes into place at the at the front end. What are you, What are you trying to do? What are you trying to accomplish? Um, what's your long term vision? What's your plans? Is this a subsidiary of a parent company that's already operating in the, in another country? Is this a an individual outside the United States that's setting up operations here in the U.S. or becoming an investor in another business here in the U.S. All of it makes a difference in deciding sort of what the right choice of entity is. So a lot of this is the conversations and the dialogue on the front end to make sure that they're thinking through the right issues and making sure that there's a team of advisors kind of in place to kind of think through it with them and, you know, kind of get, get it right at the front end because it's a lot easier to get it right at the front end than to have to change things down the road. And uh, so far, you know, we, we've touched a bit on taxation as well. And I think that's obviously for foreign entities looking to do business in a particular jurisdiction, that's a major consideration always, uh, you know, the tax of tax regime, the tax climate in a particular country. Uh, Stephen, I was wondering, uh, could you maybe perhaps give us a little bit of a overview in terms of what are the tax obligations for businesses in the US? And particularly, I think one of the things that I'm quite interested in as well is like, you know, what are the tax obligations in terms of adhering to federal, state and local corporate tax regulations in the country? And you mentioned as well, you know, sort of the potential nexus issues, which I think is something that's quite, quite interesting as well. If you could maybe, uh, you know, give us a little bit of insight on that. It's very much a multi-level kind of approach because there are so many layers of regulation and government rules to follow. Obviously, you have the federal, and depending on where the business is located or doing business, you can have many layers of the state. You've got potentially state income tax, state sales tax, franchise taxes, other uh, business property taxes, and so forth. So in, in planning through all of this, again, going back to what has been said earlier, a great deal of it comes down to setting a strategy of what it is you're going to do and what is your game plan, what is your long-term perspective. We have clients that come in, they want to build a business over a span of five or six years, sell it and take off. Others are looking to build, you know, essentially legacy businesses that they can pass on to their children and grandchildren. So those things, to a large degree, then generate how you do the planning. The second step is kind of walking through, here's what could happen. A perfect example that's non-U.S. investor wants to come into Texas, buy a bunch of real estate, and in many cases, we may use a corporate entity to hold that overall to protect them from any U.S. estate tax issues as an individual, or there's a blocker corporation and it's owned by uh, another foreign entity or foreign corporation. But the real estate rules 
when you mix in Texas, many times if you structure an underlying limited partnership to hold it, hold the real estate, then you've got a general partner. When you go to sell that property, the limited partnership avoids the franchise tax. If it was set up in an LLC, you'd get hit with a franchise tax. So 10 or $20 million property could, that, that one simple fact of structuring could save tens of thousands of dollars in tax. Those are, that's just a simple example of how that planning going forward and anticipating and walking through the process, the startup, the operations, and essentially the sale or ending of it, because every business is different. A company that's involved in U.S. real estate has a whole separate set of rules called FERPTA, Foreign Investment and Real Property Tax Act. And that's different from a, a business that's selling products or chemicals or whatever. So each one is different, unique, and, and you want to have that idea of what you're getting into before you jump into the water. Yeah, I think that's solid advice. And, and I think it, it, it also echoes what, um, you know, we've been speaking on so far and, you know, what all of you have been sharing as well. You know, it comes down to planning and understanding you know, what exactly you want to achieve. Recently, especially post-pandemic as well, you know, there have been a lot of uh, sort of tax credits and incentives that a lot of countries are sort of employing. Uh, Stephen, do you think that, uh, are there any sort of federal or uh, tax state uh, credits or incentives that businesses should be aware of? Has there been anything that's been put in place at the moment? Businesses that have been around for a while, the employee retention tax credit has been a big topic and, and the problem with that is it, it's such a lucrative credit that a lot of scammers have gotten involved. So any businesses that are investigating that need to be very careful on who they're doing business with or who's doing that study. So, you know, we are always careful to, re to refer our clients to very well-known, upstanding, solid companies to do that work. The... Currently and going forward, now that the pandemic has slowed down and, and not such an issue, that the energy credits, in, especially in some real estate deals, are quite attractive, moving to things like solar. Some of the new credits on, on vehicles are fairly limited and very confusing. But there, and when we have companies coming in looking to hire, we then step into what employment credits are available, such as what we call WOTC, W-O-T-C, which stands for Work Opportunity Tax Credit. Hiring certain employees, such as veterans or others, may generate credits of two to seven, eight, nine thousand dollars but most employers don't even know about it. Many businesses that are coming in and are doing something that's qualifies as research and experimentation can generate significant credits as well. But again, that's where you and your tax advisor and your attorneys are looking, you know, is this something that, that could possibly qualify? Because those cost savings can be applied against either income tax or employment taxes. In, in, in essence, many of these credits are available, but Oftentimes, people don't stop to look. The research credits, the employment tax credits, 
they're there, but you have to be aware. And I suppose the, the, the best way is to consult your advisors as well on that, to be aware of this kind of thing, especially for a foreign entity coming into the country. Um, Absolutely. Now, this next question is sort of a favorite on this podcast, and it's something that quite intrigues me, and I'm sure our listeners will be keen to learn more about. Accounting reporting standards uh, are often something that foreign entities take into a consideration as well when deciding whether to invest in a particular country. I was wondering, Jen, and I know this is a question that you know, could perhaps go on and on, but uh, could you give us a brief overview of what are the prevalent accounting standards in the US and what should our listeners take note of? Sure. And before I get into the specifics, I think uh, all of us have been echoing a common theme of you know, preparation as well as the, the biggest. And part of it is also the ongoing communication because just because something applied initially, there's always things that can come up, whether it's one transaction or uh, new opportunities that if the company's deciding to do something or planning to do something, maybe it could be skewed a little bit to maximize it better and to avoid issues as opposed to just chasing credits. You have to be in constant communication with your team. So when it comes to reporting, the same thing applies. For the most part, in the US besides your tax compliance, which is the biggest part and informational reporting um, related to foreign investors and stuff like that, all tax driven, administered by tax. The, the actual reporting process on the audit side and, and attestation side is you know, US GAAP, US Generally Accepted Accounting Principles. Now, there's no requirement for any company unless they're publicly traded and listed to have US GAAP style financial statements, those are ultimately driven by what is the user, who's the user, what's the end product for, what are the requirements, is this for a bank loan, is this for an investor presentation, foreign investor presentation. And again, I know a lot of this, besides the external professionals, a big chunk of how, whether it's GAAP or IFRS or tax um, there's always going to be reconciliations needed between book to tax and gap to IFRS or whatever the reporting uh, output is. You're always going to have to have some sort of bridge. So the key is really to make sure that things are accurately put in and tracked and understood, internal control and reporting inside the company so that the experts on the outside can use the information to determine what adjustments need to be done to get it into the applicable format. But for the U.S., for the most part, again, in U.S. listed companies, you're going to be filing under the, the U.S. GAAP standards. And if you are also a public company on a, on a foreign exchange, then while certain things are outside of U.S. GAAP, they will allow you to include it because it's something that you're under the foreign regime who has different rules. You're allowed to include some U.S. GAAP disclosures and accounting treatment as long, again, as you disclose it, disclose it's non-GAAP and show kind of like a reconciliation for it. So I'm hoping that can give some oversight. It's a little general topic, but you can let me know if you'd like me to go into more detail. I think that that gives a very good overview in terms of what the standards there as well. And, and I think I completely agree with you. Said there's, there's definitely a, a common thread running through to know exactly what you're trying to do, what you're trying to achieve, and do your research before going into things as well. 
Now, I understand that the US, unlike some other jurisdictions, doesn't have a single unified corporate governance code that applies across the board for corporations set up in the US. Instead, these regulations are sort of provided in state and federal laws, regulations, and listing rules. Jason, in your experience, what are some of the key corporate governance regulations, such as perhaps ESG, etc., that businesses looking to set up in the US ought to be considering? And what are the potential consequences for non-compliance with these rules? Absolutely. What, what's funny is, I'm, you know, from a corporate governance perspective, one of our other attorneys is, used to be the director of corporate governance for the state treasurer's office on an $80 billion pension fund and did a lot of international corporate governance. So she has a ton of experience on the corporate governance side, and somehow I'm on the panel. But answering this question, <laughs> um, but in, in any sense, from if it's a private company, then most of the governance is um, controlled by state law, corporate codes, um, limited liability company acts, partnership code acts in each of the states. So it's very state specific and state law specific. And then if it's not governed by that, it's governed by the operating agreements, limited partnership agreements, shareholders agreements, bylaws of, of the corporation, of the entities themselves. But from a public company perspective, as you were saying earlier, there is no overarching corporate governance code in the United States, but there's, um, there's, a, you know, there's a whole bunch of sources of guidance that, that sort of apply. Um, the SEC has their disclosure rules um, that you can kind of look at a little bit. The New, the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ have listing standards that you apply. You know, there's still state law, even for the public companies, you still have the same state law that applies as, the, as it does to the, to the private companies. Um, there's proxy advisory firms like Glass Lewis and ISS um, that sort of govern the large institutional investors and how they how they vote. So they sort of provide, you know, the, you know, they, they act as proxies to, um, you know, for the different shareholders. Um, so they have a lot of influence. And then you, you still have your very large institutional investors like CalPERS in California and BlackRock that have a lot of influence over sort of decision making from that perspective. There are trade groups like CII, which is the Council for Institutional Investors and, and, and ACD. Um, the National Association of Corporate Directors that have a lot of influence on sort of the, the code or the guidance, you know, how, how corporate governance works in the United States. But again, there is no overarching rule, but those are sort of the, um, the, the governing rules. And, and, you know, when you talk about ESG and, you know, it's not necessarily a code per se, but it's sort of what I would call a hot topic, you know, environmentally, um, social responsibility, and whether or not sort of companies should sort of consider, or investors, I guess, should consider that when, when, when investing in a business. And, you know, I think that, you know, the way I look at it, you know, and, and I think the way, um, the way you look at it from a corporate governance perspective is what you're trying to do, is, you know, an investor wants the fiduciaries to act in the best interest of the company and sort of maximize, maximize whether it's profits or value is probably the right word um, for the shareholders. So, you know, the question when you think about um, sort of the ESG standards, uh, social responsibility standards, is are they, you know, it, does this help va you know, maximize value for the shareholders or not? And, you know, so you kind of look at a couple of examples and you think about like, you know, if, if you take employee workers and you, and you move them overseas to China or some low wage places, or you, then, you know, does that help? Well, it probably maximizes profit. But it also, you know, you have to figure, you have to pay attention to child labor laws and other socially responsible um, laws that apply and whether or not they're violating those laws in exchange for making more profits. And is that better or worse for investors in the long run? Is that better or worse for the company in the long run? So that has a big impact on sort of decision making from that perspective. And that's really where ESG comes in. Diversity of boards, you know, is, is a big issue that comes into play, you know, making sure that you have 
a diverse board with getting women on boards have been has been a hot topic for a number of years. Um, but and a lot of you know a lot of times you know, that that becomes an issue that um, that you know they they focus on or the I you know the um, the proxy advisory firms focus on when they're sort of figuring out who should be a, which director slate to put into place at different companies and things of that nature. No, thanks for that, Jason. Yeah. The next one is sort of a bit more of a general question, and I'm going to put each one of you on the spot a little bit on this one, because all of you obviously, you know, you have your fingers on the pulse of the business and corporate realm in the US and, and beyond as well. Are there any sort of specific sectors or areas that you feel are prime for growth or represent, you know, an ideal focus for foreign investors or businesses looking to break into the US market? So maybe, uh, Stephen, I'm going to put you on the spot first on this one. like. Are there any specific areas that you, that you foresee if you look into your crystal ball? And... I'm seeing most common right now are an awful lot in the technology world because so much of that work can be done remotely and cross-border. So we have various clients coming in that are you know, bidding contracts with U.S. businesses, setting up a U.S. entity. But at the same time, a lot of that work can be leveraged into other countries. And so a lot of the planning and structuring has to be that way. And it seems to be a fairly uh, rapid amount of growth, even as the interest rates are going up and the economy appears to be slowing down a little bit, at least in certain segments. The second area is real estate. And as I tell clients, real estate, much like stock markets, go through cycles. In the U.S., we have about an 18 to 20 year real estate cycle. Um, we had a pretty big crash in 88. And then again, in 2008, we had the, as they call it, the Great Recession. I don't know what was so great about it, but it was a big recession. And when I tell them that, I said, okay, now count another 20 years out from 2008. And, you know, we could be seeing another speculative peak before too long. Uh, so to keep that in mind, the other side of that coin is, of course, is when those bubbles burst in the real estate speculation, you can pick up some really tremendous properties very inexpensively. Hence the old saying that, you know, fortunes are built in bear markets. When the prices are down, the smart money is buying up all the quality for pennies on the dollar. So. Depending on the, the structure in real estate, some of my smartest real estate advisors or clients are the ones who have held quality real estate for decades. And it, you know, it grows with inflation. It uh, is a stable, hard asset and works very well and, and generates tremendous amounts of cash flow. So th those are the two areas that I'm seeing very strong. We have others in agricultural and chemical that are coming in but um, not, not nearly as much interest at this point. I mean, I agree 100%. Given the time, I think that, you know, the tech and everything with social and all this stuff is, it's, it's attracting people for various reasons. One, there's a lot of money in it currently, and it's providing, you know, the kind of in and trendy and hot, exciting lifestyle that comes with it. So, you know, companies are definitely looking to kind of get the trifecta um, with, you know, tech and innovative items like that with this new generation and, and new opportunities of how to make money. 
And it goes back to what we said before about, you know, where to set up and register in the U.S. Most of these new companies don't even have a location. It's, it's all just, you know, so in the cloud, so to speak, which is why you have to know what you're doing, how you're doing it, and who's doing it where. Remote workforces change the whole rules, and you don't have to be in New York City to be on a stock market anymore. You know, it, it, I think people just have to rewire their brains uh, and thinking, and the opportunity right now is really limitless here. I would, I would echo a lot of what Steve and Jan are saying. I definitely see still a lot of real estate investors coming in. Um, I still think that's a hot area, uh, maybe slowing down a little bit than where it was a few months ago, and we'll see what happens if they if there's a shift down in the, you know, in the values of the properties, if whether that attracts even more um, money from from foreign investors. So I'm definitely seeing it from that perspective. Um, the where I see a lot of investment in the U.S. are parent companies that have operations in Europe, um, especially these days, or Asia, who are expanding their business that they've already kind of put together or put in place and have success overseas into the U.S. market. So they're sort of gotten to a, a place of, of, of success. They might be public companies, they might be larger private companies, and they're looking to expand into the U.S. market. So that's where I'm seeing a lot of it. And, and, and it varies across industries. So it's not necessarily a particular technology, necessarily technology only, um, but it's sort of they want to get feet on the ground. They're ready to put some people on the ground in the U.S. They, they pick a location, they, pick, they have a key employee that they're banking on here in the U.S. and they sort of get have a salesperson trying to help um, establish a market here and with a growth plan to grow not only, you know, in, in that particular state or locale, but all, but across the country. So that's where I think a lot of the issues that have been spotted during this podcast are are valuable because it really helped, you know, they need to know what, what the implications are um, with respect to nexus in different states and the, in the different state rules and state laws and tax issues and tax laws that come into play. But that's what I'm seeing a lot of, you know, employment laws, you know, um, when they have employees or consultants um, operating on the ground here in the U.S. That actually leads me quite nicely into, uh, you know, it's a nice little segue into, you know, sort of final question I just kind of wanted to ask you guys. And I think that, like uh, Jen, you mentioned earlier, there's been a common thread as well here, which is do your research, know what you want to do and what your objectives are, as well as also, you know, um, make sure that you rely on a team of proper advisors to advise you in terms of the various different complications and issues. But uh, would there be any other pieces of advice that you'd like to tell our listeners or perhaps, you know, business leaders who are keen to expand in the U.S. market that we haven't perhaps touched on? I think with everything that we've discussed and, and you know, Jason adding that a, a lot of foreign established companies are coming over here just to add markets to their existing products. It, it's true. And that's Again, it, it really is not chasing the hot thing or not chasing what someone else tells you to do, the structure or the way. The biggest problems we come across are people who do things and then ask us to figure out how to fix it. And I know as an attorney and accountant, while it's great that you can charge for it, it's more of a pain than anything. And the client could have saved a lot of time and money by talking to us before doing anything. And, and I think whether it's a, a foreign company, a foreign investor or a foreign professional, another C, CPA or attorney, you really need local knowledge uh, and insight and a team to work with you. And not just on the initial, again, on the ongoing. Uh, I, I know that if we have US investors that go overseas, they don't stand a chance without having overseas help. And the same thing applies for U.S. U.S. is a great place 
Uh, it's a great place for business, but you have to play within the rules uh, that are set up there for, you know, for the protection. The reason why it's a great place for foreign investors is because we do have a very strict system of fairness to the investors and to the average person to not be cheated, which is why people send their money over here. And there are strict, there are very harsh penalties um, for people who are not uh, abiding by that. And unfortunately, sometimes innocent people get, you know, real severe penalties thrown their way because they were ignorantly unaware of something and unintentionally violated something. But that's unfortunately the, uh, the price that gets paid to have the protection that's needed. So it, you just can't do it alone. This is not one of those, you know, I slept at a Holiday Inn, so I think I can do this myself. You know, you wouldn't pre perform surgery on yourself with that. You, you need a doctor. So attorneys and accountants, while people hate to say, oh, he's going to charge me for, you know, doing this write-up, it's going to save you a tremendous amount of time and money in the long run by discussing ongoing basis everything you're doing. Because uh, Nexus right now has changed the rules for people. Your, your business can be one way for 99 things. You have one new contract that has a term in there that wasn't even noticed, and it creates a nexus issue. So it is something that has to be ongoing uh, monitoring, just like you would monitor quality control of your product or anything else. You have to have ongoing monitoring of reporting and requirements. The point I would add very much is that the money spent up front in planning will pay maximum dividends down the road in savings, penalty avoidance, and uh, lost sleep. And it's because the, the complications are many. But again, the U.S. is such a, an attractive place to invest because our investment climate is very transparent. When you're investing in a, in a pension in, in the U.K. or France or whatever, you, you get very little information about what's going on. Here you see you can see constantly what's bought, what's sold, how you're doing. You add to that the uh, stable currency with the U.S. dollar, the tremendous flexibility, and and just the overall capitalist attitude of, of letting capital work to your best benefit makes it attractive for businesses around the world. And individual investors from overseas, uh, there's many techniques of of allowing them to build wealth here at very low tax costs. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great point as well. You mentioned about the transparency as well. And Jen, I'm going to steal that line about the Holiday Inn thing. It's the first time I'm hearing it. So uh, it's a commercial, that. yeah. yeah. Uh, well, uh, I just uh, I think we've, we've covered uh, quite a few areas here in today's episode, and I think we've given some very good insights to our listeners. Uh, I just want to thank you, Jen, uh, Jason, and Stephen for joining in this session. It's been a pleasure speaking to you guys and you know picking your brain in terms of how we how uh, foreign entities can do business in the United States. Uh, I'm sure our listeners have benefited greatly from the insights you've provided during this session. And uh, to our listeners as well, as always, if you'd like to get in touch with our panelists, uh, please do not hesitate to get in touch with us. And you know our members are always on hand to assist. So once again, uh, gentlemen, thank you so much. So this has been Vantage Worldwide, brought to you by Abacus Worldwide. If you'd like to listen in to our other episodes, you can do so via your favourite podcast app, or alternatively via our website at www.abacusworldwide.org. Thank you for listening. Stay safe and take care.